Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, episode 49. This is Derek, one of your regular hosts on the show. I have my two uh, inter- interim hosts, I guess, is what you guys have been. This is your sixth week with me on our journey. Uh, Ray. What's up, dudes? And Zach. Hey, hey. And they've uh, been going through the Star Trek movies with me. We started with Generations. We went through all four TNG films. And then last week, we kicked things off in the Kelvin timeline with the 2009 Star Trek reboot sequel prequel. And uh, this week, we continue on to Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, No real news to cover this week, so we're just going to dive right into the film. So, Star Trek Into Darkness uh, came out in 2012, takes place just one year after the where the, the previous film ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2259 is where 99% of the movie takes place, um, aside from that final time jump at the end. So uh, let's, let's kick things off, I guess, with, with the beginning. Um, I do want to ask, how did you watch this one? Uh, like originally i'm or... going somewhere with maybe i should just start this was the first star trek movie i saw in 3d oh yeah i, I saw it with you i'm pretty do we, sure, do, I'm sure I'm yeah sure. i think we did the 3d i, I know I, I did the 3d i'm assuming we saw it at the same time is what I'm saying. i did buy 13 tickets to opening night yeah i was with you <laughs> we saw it at the amc 30 right we did yes. yeah yeah okay so ray what about you i saw this a year after it came out on a friend's couch and yeah that was the thing oh okay so it was my first 3D Star Trek film, my only Star Trek film, I guess. Yeah. Um, and in uh, 3D, your only Star Trek film in 3D. What did I say? Your only Star Trek film. Yeah, my my only Star Trek. I mean, I, that was kind of implied. It wasn't that. Okay. <laughs> well, for those back home, I'm sorry <laughs> if you're deeply confused. Um, so. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring that up was that I was curious if anybody had any opinions about the 3D. Um, the reason I, I kind of ask is that I remember the opening sequence being really cool in 3D and then mm-hmm. totally forgetting that the movie was in 3D for the rest of it. Right. So well, the 3D was, it's so, I feel like that was the beginning of a new generation for 3D and that it became just more immersive. I remember very subtle things like, uh, and I'll talk more about this later, but the cinematography in this film is some of the best we've seen in Trek, in my personal opinion. And uh, there is uh, the scene where not con slash con you know, it, spoiler alert! Yeah, spoiler alert! Uh, is uh, approaching. His name's Thomas. I'm going to call him Mickey because he was Mickey in Doctor Who. But he's approaching him on. on <laughs> yeah, I'm approaching him. On, approaching him on the balcony. I don't even know who you're talking about. Okay, yet. so at the, the beginning, dog, the, the, the father, the father of the movie. Yeah, when sorry. I kept saying, "Hey, it's Mickey the idiot," and, and you said, were like, "I don't get that." I said, "I don't know what that means," and then you didn't respond. So. Uh, <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, this is why I'm here to explain these things for you. Now, R- context. Context. Gap. context. 
Um, his name's Thomas. I'm going to call him Mickey. And he's a pro- uh, Cumberbatch is approaching him on this balcony. And the scene is from the top down. And and the only real 3D effects are, like, the tiers of the roof. Mm. And so, like, it's little tiny little nuances like that that uh, even throughout the rest of the film, like, yeah, like, the first scene really highlights with the Nibiru. It highlights the, you know, stuff flying in your face as they're running through the forest. Uh, but you don't have as much of that later on. But, but yeah, the, the 3D, it felt much more, I don't know, immersive. And it was, uh, as, as such, it was easy to forget. And maybe that's what it was. Maybe it wasn't the gimmicky 3D. That, exactly. And so it wasn't noticeable. Right. Um, I, I mean, the, the, so I bought, the tickets I bought, I bought because they were IMAX, yes. right? I'm like, well, we're going to see it in IMAX. And of course. this was at a time where your only IMAX option was going to be 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I mean, I didn't hurt the experience any. I was just curious if you guys had any opinions about that. Cause no. like i don't see movies in 3d because a i get a headache and b they usually are for gimmicks like yeah i spent money on the uh great and powerful oz in 3d Mm because it was the only like showtime at that time yeah and he legit put things in that film just used a 3d oh yeah like like buttons popping and like water squirting on your face like it was Um, just it was dumb james franco like flipped a coin at one point Mm -hmm. and they followed the coin like that was the important part of the story i remember that it was so trash like yes that's not how 3d should work you don't put certain actions in it just so you can have the 3d offer Mm-hmm. What was the? It was an animated film. It was like Monsters vs. Aliens or something yes. like that. Yeah. I think it was. And like in one of the opening scenes, there's a dude, like a, a security guard or something, at his post, and he reaches behind himself to grab a, a cheeseburger that's like right in the screen. He's like, "Let me just grab my cheeseburger," and like reaches yeah. out of the screen. You're like, this is not. This is, and I, I saw that in 2D, which makes it even worse. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at least in, Into Darkness, whether you watch it in 2D or 3D, like it doesn't hurt the experience either way. No. I don't think so. Yeah. So, okay. For sure. Cool. All right. So let's let's start with then with with the opening. Um, yeah. It really just kind of begins with the action pretty quickly, which um, mm-hmm. which is nice. You know, no no slow kind of. Slow well, the burn. cool thing is what starts out. It seems like just another adventure, just another romp for these guys. But what happens on Nibiru? Uh, permeates throughout the entire rest of the story so Mm -hmm. and that isn't usually what happens if you start a movie in the middle of an action sequence and you get context later on by watching more it's usually forgotten Mm -hmm. it was just there for fun to get your interest but the cool thing that into darkness did was keep that relevant for the entire rest of the movie and i can appreciate that yeah it's a beautiful planet. The reds the and everything are just super yeah. cool. I maintain that The Last Jedi ripped it off in this last one. Because well, the, the stark red on white is yeah. so pretty it is. that they wanted to accomplish something similar. They did it different, but it was a total ripoff of the color palette. No, not the scene, not the action, yeah. nothing else. Just the color palette. Was it was it the same art director behind the scenes? I, mean, it might have been, I mean, JJ, right? you know. Bad robots involved in both. So. Right. Um, what I, what I really liked about this scene though, is that, so in Star Trek, 
most of the time when you're on an alien planet, you're in a building somewhere and it looks futuristic, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, the Klingons have a style and the Romulans have a style. And then you have your aliens of the week that all kind of look the same. Mm-hmm. This was one of the rare opportunities where you got to see the ecosystem yeah. of an alien planet and it wasn't like a desert. Right, <laughs> right. You know, because that's the cheap you shoot out in the, you know, by the tar pits, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was totally different. Um, I mean, it's also a primitive life form, which usually, you know, in TOS, a lot of the aliens were humanoid looking that had, you know, slightly different clothes and uh, they had similar technology or similar, uh, like just close to it. They were almost there or Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. TNG worked a little bit more with, with cultures that were less advanced, um, you know, but it was still like. The budgets were tight because it was first off it was TV, second off it was you know the the late eighties early nineties, right? right? So this was a rare occurrence where you could see like a planet and there's like an Aztec style pyramid and you have this cool looking I guess forest. I don't know what else you would call it, right? Yeah. And, and let's face it, you know, Roddenberry was a progressive man, and when you show primitive cultures, it can be very insensitive. So mm-hmm. he probably skipped over a lot of that on purpose because at the same time, Westerns were a huge thing. And they were doing that to real Native Americans. Like, first of all, they were whitewashed and right. they were made to be less intelligent and less capable human beings. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that this being a great example of a primitive culture um, is just because we have more sensitivity and we can handle that with a deft hand now. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a cool scene though. You know, you get the quick Bones Kirk interaction that we all loved from the first one. Mm-hmm. You know, Carl mm-hmm. Urban, I mean, I'm not saying anybody does a bad job, but Carl Urban is just so spot on. He really is. Um, his delivery, his style, his, his connotations, it's just inflections perfect. It's it's amazing. So Yeah. Um Alright. So then of course, you know, they run, they jump because they have to get to the ship that's underwater. Um I could complain about that, but I'm not going to because it's a really pretty shot when it comes out of the water. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> You don't you know you don't have to complain. Scotty did the complaining for you in that scene. <laughs> yep. So there you go. It's true. We were because I he is the voice of the Scotty is the voice of all of us yeah. while we're watching this. Kind of. He really is. He's the sanest one. Um, he's kind of a... Zach, I think you said this last week, that Scotty's kind of like the conscience for this Star Trek. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I had never noticed that before, and now mm-hmm. I can't not notice yeah. it. So. It's such an integral part of this whole trilogy. Like, he is kind of the... He's the conscience. He's kind of the heart. So, definitely represents the best of what the Federation can be. So... My only problem with the scene, legitimately, is the whole Prime Directive problem. Right. Because they're breaking the Prime Directive by messing with the volcano already. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. Pike but, does call him out on that. And he does. Yeah. Right? So, I think what bothers me is that they play it off as, like, a technicality because they weren't seen. And, you know, Spock has the line about how he's Vulcan and they embrace technicality, which is a funny line. But, at the end of the day, like... It's pretty clear that you're interfering with a culture and changing the course of their existence. And that in itself breaks the Prime Directive. So, yes. yeah. He's so, Spock's so hung up on the Prime Directive about them not saving him because of it. Mm-hmm. But they're blatantly breaking the Prime Directive anyway that it seems to just not work consistently. 
It's right. very hypocritical. Well, it's hypocritical, but it's also, I mean, indicative of the type of leader that Kirk is at this point. Like, this is the, the cowboy diplomacy. That's true. Like, this is him just doing what he thinks is best in the moment. And yeah, it's inconsistent, but I mean, that's... And that's not a fault in the movie or a, even in the writing, in my opinion, as much as it is indicative of that character. But Spock is making the same decision, though. He's he is. He thinks it's okay to mess with the volcano. Absolutely. But for different reasons. Uh, like, like we touched on last time, like the timeline has altered and we're seeing a very different, more emotional Spock than what we would have seen before. And so he's a bit more prone to being manipulated in, in, in a way. Also, he's. We start off this movie, and he's got kind of a death wish. Like he's he's really, you know. Well, that's not fair. Like he's. He, I mean, he's, he's on edge. He's on edge, and he might be more emotional. But even later, he explains. You know, like he doesn't want to die. He has no. no interest in dying. No. You know, but he also isn't one to run from death either. Right. right? And so, I mean, he feels like he. You know, it's, it's the needs of the many. He even has the line, if I remember right, in mm-hmm. that scene, right? He thinks he's helping an entire civilization. If that means his one life, that seems like a fair trade for him. Right. That's consistent with the character. For sure. You know, for me, it's more of just he also doesn't think that that's breaking the prime directive. Right. Which. That's not a technicality, that's just wrong. Right. <laughs> but yeah, and I agree with that. My point is just that he's less married to the letter of the law of logic at this point and more flexible, the same way that old Spock is more flexible in his dealings. Maybe, but the whole first half of the movie is how he's not that flexible. I guess like, yeah. he can just justify it. Because if they are able to slow this volcano, to not have it erupt and kill all these people, then these people can go on as if nothing happened. But if they see the starship or anybody in a Starfleet uniform or advanced technology, then their their lives are forever changed. Oh, sure. I mean, so, we, I mean, he's just able to justify it. Yeah, we could have a philosophical conversation about the Prime Directive, because I have a lot of yeah. problems with the Prime Directive. Oh, yeah. Um, but if you're going to argue to an admiral about whether or not you're breaking it, I do feel like the law is pretty clear. You can just yes. be okay with breaking it that, you know, Picard and Janeway have done a million times, right? For sure. But at least they admit when they're breaking it, and yeah. that's that's the that's the difference. That's all. Yeah. I guess we're comparing the two Spocks, right? Mm-hmm. And later on, the the Prime Spock says that I promised I would never give you information that would alter your course. But it's that being said, so like he, yeah, we'll get to that scene. He does that kind of stuff too. It, there's precedent. In the last one, where he's like, "You, you lied. I implied." So <laughs> I know I'm not. I'm not yeah. comparing the two Spocks. I'm straight up saying that. Yeah, I know, but I'm straight up saying that. Like when they're when they're with Pike, and Pike is mad, and he has every right to be mad. Yeah, you know. And we're not arguing with you. I guess oh, we're just okay. like, yeah, figuring right, well out reasons why. Yeah, <laughs> let's move on then. So of course they save Spock. I mean, right? You know, I. Duh. I'm glad that that storyline continues through the rest of the film because I don't think there was anybody in the audience who thought they were going to kill Spock off in the first opening scene right. kind of thing. You know? Well, and it almost kind of reminded me a bit of, um, so I guess before Wrath of Khan came out, there were rumors that Spock was going to die. And then you've got that opening scene where he quote-unquote dies on the bridge during the Kobayashi Maru. And so most people who heard that rumor are watching this movie and thinking like, oh, there's no big deal. And they get to the end and that's a gut punch. Whereas this, it's like, 
there's that whole scene where J.J. Abrams knew what he was doing with like the, the other the glass thing, and we're like, oh shit, he's gonna kill off Spock again. And so this scene happens. I mean, I know there's no glass or whatever, but I mean, it seemed like a bit of a distraction. Like, oh, yeah, we're not gonna do this. Man, another thing that they ripped off from the Wrath of Khan. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. That hurts the scene for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that scene's over. They go back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Kirk's in trouble. Uh, they get yelled at. Um, get- and demoted. And demoted. He gets yeah. demoted, which is a big deal. Uh, not the first time a Kirk gets demoted. You no. Know? Um, well, and Bruce Greenwood, uh, you know, Pike yelling at Kirk is basically the hardcore fans, like, commenting on the first film. Like, everything he's saying, like, you're reckless and irresponsible. Like, I mean, the, this is basically everything that, like, classic Trekkies had to say after seeing walking out of the first film. To an extent. I mean, he even makes a comment about how you're, you're using blind luck to justify, mm-hmm. uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but to justify his, his actions, right? And it's yeah. true, like, a lot of it, like... A lot of it was dumb luck. It was dumb luck in the first movie that he overheard Uhura's conversation about intercepting the transmission, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I like the scene. Bruce Greenwood's great. He's a great Pike. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a bummer to to see him go in this one because I just wanted... I would have liked to have seen more. That was more. a disservice. Yeah. It would have been good to see more of him. It's a frustrating mm-hmm. way for him to die. Chris Pine acts the hell out of that scene. He does a he great job does. reacting to that. Good God. I mean, he does a good job in this film. Like, yeah. this is... Um, yeah. Great performances all around. Um, I mean, it's... The, the situation with Pike in, in in their first meeting is pretty consistent, right? Spock's not going to forge a uh, a report, and I like that he just he assumed that Kirk wasn't going to do that either. Yeah, uh, which I mean, maybe that's wishful thinking on Spock's part, but you know, they've only been together for a year, so they're still right. Plenty to learn. They're figuring that out. And as a side note, because you brought it up, uh, the Kirk Spock bromance is fantastic in this film. Yes, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that going on. Kirk is very upset and hurt that that Spock doesn't understand why he would save him. There's that that uh, scene in the elevator, the you know I'm gonna miss you, and then you know, or is he, Spock's just kind of like, you know, not quite getting it, and you know, the Kirk gets pissed, and, and I don't know, like there's a lot of like, uh, it's a cool relationship that happens between the two of them in that scene, and then throughout the film, really. Um, which, and we can touch more on this later, but one of the things I really love about this film, and and a lot of it is exhibited in Kirk's, uh, acting, but there's a lot more raw emotion, uh, and it's not always good. I mean, we'll talk more about this, but, like, it's definitely, um, Uhura deserved better than just to be the emotional, nagging girlfriend. Um, but that aside, like, you see a lot of, of just raw emotion from Kirk, and, um, to me, that seemed to, seemed to be a bit of a reflection on uh, male vulnerability. And, I mean, there, there's, you know, men crying, and that's not a thing that, like, you would see in a normal action star movie. And, and I appreciated that um, discussion, if you will, on, on, you know, masculinity. Because uh, we talked about it last week. The Kirk in this, this world, uh, the JJ-verse, uh, displays a lot of toxic masculinity. And he does it in this film, too. But he's also more comfortable with his emotional side. Which... Um, I mean, even Shatner, we didn't see much of that from. No, until Shatner later, until David died. I mean, yeah, that's that's the only time Shatner's Kirk cries. I mean, even in the fifth movie, when Cybok's yeah. able to you know bring forth those memories, he chooses not to do it. Yeah, right. So you don't get to see his reaction from that. Whereas both right. Spock and Bones do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that was a Shatner decision or it if that was, was just how the character <laughs> it was written. Me, I'm not, I'm not sure, honestly. Um, yeah, but. Uh, so the this scene has like my first real annoyance in the movie though, and it may be small and it may be nitpicky, but it bothers me. 
and they do this really cool pan on this is like Peter Weller's desk. This is later. Yeah. This is a later scene. I apologize. Sure. We need to talk we, about the archive. Yeah, that's and, a later scene. Uh, I was, the gathering of the first officers and captains. The yeah. room looks the same. I feel like they use the same set in those scenes. Yeah. So, um, I know yeah. exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, really. we'll get there. Yeah. But yeah, like backing up, like I really love, uh, and it was a, a strength of the film, I feel like, with the. You mentioned the archive scene interspersed in between like the Nibiru scene and then like the consequences of that. There is this scene that is done beautifully. First of all, Chiquino's work is better in this film. I feel like than in 2009, he just, he gets a lot more creative. There's a lot more happening. Um, there's a, a bigger range of themes happening because he, he does the exciting and adventure. He does the emotional stuff. I mean, the piano thing uh, for the, so his name's, Thomas, but again, Mickey, like, you know, Mickey's, you know, to summarize, I guess, since we're talking about it, you know, Mickey uh, has his daughter. She's obviously very sick. Uh, this is seeming to be a very terminal illness. A um, lot of emotion. You see, you know, grieving parents and struggling approached by a stranger who offers to help. Uh, and, and the majority of this, uh, these scenes here are done without words. Like it's all done uh, with, you know, choice moments and music and, and you don't need anyone to tell you, like, what this girl's disease is or what's going on. Like, you you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was particularly well done. Well, because what the disease is isn't really important. Right. I mean, right. that was just an example. Yeah. I'm yeah, saying, yeah. Like, there were a lot of details about that scene that we didn't get. Um, I mean, I had to look it up to find out his name was Thomas. Um, his right. daughter's name is Lucille, because I saw it on a... Uh, Lucille Harewood, the Harewood family. Um, Lucille, it was on like one of the displays, mm. briefly. Um, but so this, yeah, this is an example of sometimes less is more, right? Because if yes. you don't, if you don't say a disease, then you don't have anybody who can complain about what which disease you picked. Exactly, right? Because this is in the future, so theoretically, mm -hmm. we would like to hope that a lot of the diseases that we currently struggle with, we have an answer for by then. In but... Roddenberry's future, one would hope. <laughs> We've also brought in hundreds, thousands, millions of other people mm -hmm. and their culture and their bacteria and maybe not everybody's immune to it yet. So right. it, the future leads to more diseases. It may be different. Right. You yeah, know. that's fair. Polio well, yeah. and measles aren't a thing now, but... Right. You know. Well, they kind they, of they, are. they could come back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It's just beautifully shot, beautifully done. Um, less is more. It was there were a couple of really cool yeah. scenes done with minimal dialogue, and they they told a pretty profound story. And it's one that like, as we continue talking about this movie, I will keep referring back to it because I think it's an important theme that resonates. Um, and it's, I guess, just to to start this scene for me is uh, Trek at its best is it's a moral play, and it asks these deep, profound questions about you know, philosophy and um, the world around us. And, and this scene, it does a few things. It um, it asks the question, you know, what cost, you know, would you go to to save someone that you love? Mm -hmm. That um, seems to be the moral justification for everyone's actions throughout the entire absolutely. movie. Absolutely. So, you know, it's kind of nice to see that theme pop up immediately by yes. tertiary characters. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Khan straight up says it, right? Mm -hmm. like, what wouldn't you do for your family? But right. it's also motivating right. Marcus. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. also motivating Kirk. It, it motivates 
uh, horror. Yeah. So it's Every, just it's present everywhere. It yeah, is. that's 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 the tone of this particular film. Is what right. would you do for your family, or what wouldn't you right. do for your family? And it's like I, I watched that scene the first time I saw it in theaters, like. You know, I was of the father at that point. I mean, I still am, but I was, you know, I, I was a new father. Like, I was new to the fatherhood thing. He's actually Newer. aging backwards. Yeah, though. Benjamin Button. It's fine. Um, but I was, you know, uh, you know, I had one I had a child at this time, and, and I was relatively new to the fatherhood thing. And I'm asking myself, like, would I do that if the tables were turned? Because, yeah, like, I want, I would want my daughter to live. But then you have to ask yourself... Um, and I again, don't know if I would commit a terrorist act. Well, see, that's the thing. I would name of my child. I wouldn't because, and here's the thing. And again, I fucking love the cinematography in this film. There is so much, and, and again, I'm seeing this. Uh, you know, again, I went into this thinking like I might hate this because everyone hates this, and maybe I just you know wasn't viewing it critically. That's enough. not fair. Not everybody hates this. <laughs> I don't like this movie. I'm uh, not everyone. I don't speak for all Trekkies. No, but so all much right. of the internet, so much of the internet uh, does not like this. I film. am a Trek Lorax. So. I speak for. <laughs> So I always do a poll. I always. I've been yes. doing a poll for these movies that right. we've been reviewing. Yeah. All right. And to be fair here, I um, I have our results from this poll. Oh, yeah. Um, and I apologize. These are from, there were 18 minutes left. So if somebody voted within the last 18 minutes and this changes, I apologize. Uh, but 48% yeah. gave it a B. Okay. Yeah. That's huge. 19% gave it an A. Yeah. Right? So that means basically you know, we have 30, uh, 34% gave it less than a B. Yeah. Okay? Uh, 19% gave it a D or lower with 15% giving it a C. Twitter only gives you four options. Right. Um, so that's definitely not the best, right? Of course, right? First Contact had 80% as an as uh, yeah. the best of the, yeah. you know. Yeah. Right? We've been through these other ones. It's certainly not the best. No. However... Um, it's not the worst. No. It's definitely not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, yeah, I guess I would have thought it would have been worse than that too. But anyways, getting back to like, like the cinematography in this film is fantastic because as the um, archive is blowing up, the camera pans to the daughter's window and you see that she's healthy. But like, you don't even see the actual daughter. You see, um, as this explosion's happening outside the window, the camera zooms in and you see the explosion, but you see a, a photo of the daughter smiling on the dresser or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just like that juxtaposition of uh, extreme death and, and life and hope like is messy and conflicted. And like, you're supposed to watch that and feel, I mean, I felt a little gross and, and I, I asked myself like, could I do that as a father? And I couldn't because here's the deal. I would, is it worth saving my daughter's life? And, and I'll get back to this. I have another point about this later on in the film, but like, is it worth, uh, would it be worth saving my kid's life? And then having her exist in this... At the cost this... of 43 others? Well, and regardless, yeah, regardless of how many other people died, like, this changes the world. And this film is... Uh, one of the reasons I love this film is it is uh, very much a reflection of post-9-11 society and how that shifted our culture. And, um, and, and this is a situation where do I want my daughter's life to continue living and then have her exist in a culture of uh, fear and... and and chaos and, and all these things that are that are contrary to what the Federation's supposed to be about? And the answer is no. Like so yeah. Yeah, I wanna so I wanna be a little careful with some of that. Um the section thirty one and the vengeance um are supposed to be reflections of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Right? Um with that said, uh section thirty one existed in Star Trek lore prior to nine eleven. 
Um, it did, but the way so, that this film displays it is absolutely a commentary on to, to an extent. Bush's, you but know, America. the attack on the archives is not a terrorist attack. Khan has it blow up so he can steal a trans war transporter. That is the only I mean, reason that happens. That was not done to incite fear or violence or be an attack up- upon a particular belief group or cultural group. It was a heist. So he's Gruber. I'm sorry? Hans, Hans Gruber. Gruber. Oh, I mean... It's a robbery. Yeah, that... it's a robbery. It is a heist. Sure. It is designed but just I mean, to steal an object. I, I don't want to conflate the two because yeah. the attacks in 9-11 were about who these people saw our country as a culture, as a religion, as right. a belief system. And it was meant to be an attack on those intangibles. Whereas the attack on the archives was literally to steal an object. It doesn't make it any less... I mean, again, we, we can get into the nuances of, like, how you define terrorism and, like... But it's no, it's no, literally no different than... It's a heist. Like, if you go in with guns and shoot everybody in there and steal right. from a bank, that's not a terrorist attack. It's still... It's terrible. It's a crime. It's murder. Yeah. Right? But the weapon of choice isn't what defines whether or not it's a terrorist attack. It's the motivations and the reasons. I get that, but, I mean, the end result is still very much the same and, and that, like... And, again, we're also seeing this in a... This is, like, Roddenberry's utopia. This is a world in which... You know, if an if amount of death, uh, that, that amount of death occurred, it would be due to an accident. It would be a natural disaster. Like, you don't see, like, I mean, yes, there's war, there's stuff at the board, like, I get that. But, like, this, and again, regardless of, of the specifics and the motivations and all that, like, this is absolutely, like, as a film, like, they were commenting on... The Vengeance is a comment on that, right? The Vengeance is supposed to be, hey, we saw Vulcan get destroyed, we're not gonna let that happen to us. Right. Right? But the Archives is a separate thing. And it gets conflated with the Vengeance because they're in the same movie. Yeah. But there's really no connection between those two things. I mean, a massive explosion and, and loss of life, you know... Is an attack. It's it's murder. It's an attack. Yeah. But if I if, but... if if somebody goes into a bank and shoots everybody and steals the money, it's not a terrorist attack. It's a it's a bank robbery. This right. was a museum robbery, an archive robbery, and he decided the best way to do it was to blow the thing up rather than go in guns blazing. Right. That's the yeah. only difference. Yeah. Right. So I just want to make sure we separate the two because. I don't want to belittle what the vengeance is supposed to represent. No, that's fair. But the archives are not in that conversation. They're there simply because he needs that that trans warp transport. Right. But this is also, and again, I agree with that, but this is also a world in which um, that's not a thing that people do. Khan is very much out from the outside. Like, this is not a, a common thing. It's only a year after the events on Vulcan. Right. So I'm this so we just had an entire planet destroyed and Earth was almost destroyed. Sure. By somebody with very similar motives to Khan. Yeah. I mean Nero's motives aren't really that different. He was also no. a villain out of time. Right. True. All of the Kelvin villains are out of time. That's so weird. I never yeah. noticed that before. I yeah. Well, yeah. Crawls the same way. Uh huh. Huh. That's interesting. I wonder why they did that. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice way to salvage on beliefs. Is yeah. pretty intense. It... It's a it's a nice way to salvage the innocence of that era um, with some believable villains from a more postmodern era. It's interesting. I and have to point, think on that. I never yeah. noticed it before. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week's discussion on out of time villains. Uh, well, we have Beyond, so you know. yeah. Uh, anyway, so 
the the other reason I want to focus on this archive thing is because it unfortunately introduces an object that kind of breaks Star Trek, and that's the transwarp transporter. Oh yeah, because if you can beam from Earth to Kronos with a device smaller than a human being, yeah, what do you need starships for? What do you need? a vengeance for you could beam an entire army onto a planet and take over a city without them ever knowing you were coming not if there's only one but why there's like if you built one why can't you build a second one they built the vengeance you're telling me that that was easier no 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 i i'm saying that this is clearly a macguffin of some kind right and that they didn't develop rules for it so i'm assuming I'm assuming that because Marcus is not just using it himself everywhere around wherever he wants to go and do, it's because there's limitations to it. Maybe it can only do one person. Like, I don't know. But I I don't want to focus on that part of the movie because I feel like that was just sloppy MacGuffin writing. It was. The, The reason it's important for me, though, is that there's an answer for what Scotty and I believe Starfleet represents, which is exploration. Yes. Voyager deals with this, right? The reason we don't fill the starships with robots is because it's about the exploration. It's about the journey, to the journey, mm-hmm. right? That's what it's about for what I believe Starfleet to be. But that's not what well, Weller, Marcus, <laughs> uh, Marcus, Admiral Marcus believes Starfleet to be. Starfleet well, for him is a military force. So in that case, that, but, that transporter is the most valuable piece of technology Starfleet has ever created. Well, you just you just solved your own problem here. Because Starfleet is not Admiral Marcus. He's an admiral, he has power, but there are checks and balances within Starfleet. Except it's Section 31's archive that he runs. Yeah. And there were no checks and balances that built his ship. Right, right. But I mean, if he's going to start wielding that transwarp uh, transport with reckless abandon, that's going to draw attention. Even if, yeah, you can beam an army onto a planet, you know, without them knowing, but that's going to cause problems. And there are certain, I mean, yes, there's no checks and balances on on Section 31, but to be uh, both an admiral of Starfleet and then a leader of this, like, you know, organization, there's certain, like... There's politics. There's 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 checks and balances in that. Like it was probably in the archive to prevent abuse. The the thing is though is that so the archive wasn't really an archive, right? We're actually told that it's a Section Thirty One installation. He runs Section Thirty One. Yes. Nobody else in Starfleet knows the Vengeance exists. They're building this absolutely massive battleship. Mm -hmm. If he can build this thing, the largest starship ever built with more advanced weaponry and warp drive technology than anything else on the fleet. In San Francisco, like it's... Well, no, it was built by Sa- by Jupiter. Oh. That's what Scotty goes to find. Yeah. Right? So that that's out there on Jupiter. If he wanted to build those transporters, he could have built those transporters. Okay? There's nothing that leaves me to believe that this guy who has all of this power, somehow it stops on this one item. But, I mean, you have to think about, it, like, that's huge power, and it could, if there's more than one, and if it's being used recklessly, it could easily fall into the hands. It's going to get it's gonna get attention, no matter what. And if, it's, and if why, it gets attention, it, it will be, end up in the hand. If you installed them on the Vengeance, if you installed uh, Transwarp Transporters on the Vengeance, mm-hmm. how is that any more of a risk than the Vengeance already is? 
It already has warp drive faster than the Enterprises by a wide margin. Right. Weapon systems that tear through it like paper, right? So it's already the most dangerous thing out there. If you were to throw those transporters on it, how is that any more of a risk? Because then you could you could beam people from the edge of Federation space to Kronos and still have your ship there to back them up if you needed to. You know, like there's there's even ways to work around it. So it just it creates a hole that all it does is force the Enterprise into that weird position. So the Vengeance has to go and it get was, it. was yeah, it was a way to in- include Kronos. And that's just kind of for yeah. me. Like, no, it, it was a sloppy MacGuffin. Yeah. So, just, but the problem is, it sets up the whole second half of the film because the Enterprise has to go out to Kronos, where it breaks down on the edge of Klingon space, and then the Vengeance has to come and get it, and then they right. have to have the big warp fight. Like right. all the big moments that happen happen because of that object. Yeah, and that that's where you have a problem for me. No, I get that. So anyway, so we have the archive. What else? What's 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 after that? We um, need to talk about the meeting. Yeah, the between meeting. the first officers. Oh, the right. Captains, of course. The report that forty to forty three people are dead. Yeah, it's a cool scene. Um, I appreciate that it actually kind of shows how following regulation all the time is a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> right, because it makes you predictable. Right, and something Kirk is not is predictable. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So it's an interesting scene. I do appreciate what what the point is. Um, sucks that they had to kill off um, Pike. Yeah. You can't have two elderly white men in the same movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ray, what are your thoughts on that? It's a fine scene. Like, um... Scenic, perhaps? The the boomerang, I guess, that Kirk fashions. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Lasso or whatever. Like, it it was very neat. Like, I guess these movies get knocked a lot because they have way more action than any other Star Trek movie. And, you know, the the TNG movies got knocked because they increased the action and stuff. So, um, but the action was done really well. And watching this, this is the third time I've seen this movie. And it, I think I enjoyed it the most this time. I think I was paying more attention to tiny detail and the that scene, the Kronos um fight and then um the fight on the I guess they're hovering freighters or whatever with Spock oh, yeah. and Khan at the end. But they're just good. They're they're just well choreographed and Yeah. My problem with sci fi fights that sometimes so much is going on that I can't keep track. That that's a huge reason why I gave up on you know ever trying to watch a Transformers movie. <laughs> oh god, those are just it's, terrible. Like, let's take away the shitty plot for a while. Like, but the fights, keeping track yeah. of what is going on is damn near impossible. I mm-hmm. don't know how editors were able to sit through that and cut it. Well, sometimes I think it's just like shaky cam, shaky cam, flash of metal, flash Mesh, of metal. Meshes done. of stuff. And done. And then someone's still standing and someone isn't. Like, that. that's all of the... Uh, I hated those so, kind of scenes. As long as the colors are close enough, you can't really tell which robot they belong to. And yeah. I just get... <laughs> I get really impressed when I'm... A, when a lot is going on, but I'm still able to keep track of every laser, every body part. Yes. Like, so, this mm-hmm. scene and the Kronos and the freighter scene, like, they're just well choreographed action scenes that 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, you don't really hear me ever complaining about the action, uh, because if you're going to do a movie, you, you have to... love action movies. I like, do. I don't think you talk about it enough on any of your podcasts, but you're a sucker for a good action movie. And I, I think that when you're going to do Star Trek, part of the reason why I, I do believe that Star Trek prospers better on uh, TV... See what you did there. I did, ...is that... You can't always have some world or universe or galaxy ending thing happen, and you kind of need that for a, for a, a successful movie. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, unfortunately, otherwise, yeah. why put it on the big screen? Why not put it on the small screen? Like, exactly. Small screen stories don't do well on the big screen, and that's why you look at you know the TNG films and First Contact. You're talking about all of the Federation on the line. In Nemesis, you're talking about all of Earth on the line. Yeah. Right. In Insurrection, you're talking about 300 people. In mm-hmm. Generations, you're talking about a planet we don't you even get to know. You are talking about genocide. Though. We are. They're, they're important issues. They're very important Star Trek moral, ethical issues. But do they put seats in the chairs at theaters? You know, that's the problem, yeah. right? The, which almost makes it more frustrating that the, the Kelvin movies each made less money than the one before it. Because, I mean, Into Darkness in my opinion, has more action sequences and better done action sequences than the 09 film. Yes. Um, Less lens flare. Still alive. (laughs) Still This time they only did it when people were talking and it went right across their face. So that was great. (laughs) Um, Anyway. This was uh, was a darker film. There wasn't room for lens flare. And not just because of the title or the subject matter. It was literally darker. It was. Uniforms, settings. It had the Zack Snyder filter. It did. It did. I don't know. So we didn't really talk about the uniforms, and I'm very torn on them because they're well, bad. They, yeah. I thought you liked the the military ones. That okay, are the gray ones, yeah. the charcoal ones they're wearing. Good. Good. Okay. Um, spacesuit that they're flying in. Bad. Bad. Um, the the three different color shirts. Bad. They look like they're made out of cheap jersey material they give to peewee leagues like <laughs> that's why they change them in beyond yes. yeah oh god um, they look so amazing in beyond yeah mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about that one next week um, yeah the thing with the military uniforms is while i think they're really nice uniforms i don't like them in star trek i can they're yeah well and that's i get that i have thoughts on that i mean like this is like a game I don't know, because we're talking about how, like, the theme of this film is asking yourself, you know, what you would do to sacrifice those you love. And, like, it gets a little heavy-handed by the end, but um, the other thing that this film does particularly well is it shows us, you know, shows the Federation who they want to be by showing a chapter in which they were not that. And these these outfits look very Nazi-esque. Like, they look very militaristic, they look very dark, they look very foreboding. Like, this they is not the optimistic... They look very similar to, like, First Order Hux kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the hats, especially. Okay. Which like... just makes me feel like, again, it was Abrams' opportunity to show off his Star Wars knowledge, rather than making a Star Trek movie. <laughs> I but there's no argument about that. Thing... Abrams clearly was using these films as his audition tape. <laughs> it's true, it's true. The thing is, though, they, they still have the normal Star Trek colors and uniforms yes these are just their dress uniforms well the admiral's uniforms look like they're out of the the very first motion picture i like that yeah but these other ones these like solid grays with the the very military hat they are different the captains and the first officers only have the that light gray the students still have the red and the black from the first movie so 
Like, why? Why couldn't they still wear the red and the black? Because I really liked those. But we have an admiral in charge of Starfleet right now, and I feel like this is an artistic choice to reflect that. We've got an admiral towards the head of Starfleet right now who believes that Starfleet is not an exploratory peacekeeping tax force. This is a... um, like a militaristic organization, but all of his this work is, is supposed to be in secret. It is, but like again, we're talking about a movie, and these are like just subtle art choices uh, that are shown to demonstrate or to, on some subconscious level, get the audience to feel. Um, his work something. is in secret, but he gathers those people to tell them that it's a manhunt, and they need to all go out and get him now. Well, right. sure, but I mean, this this was a guy who just slaughtered. A bunch of high-ranking officers in Starfleet. I would, I would expect a reaction similar to that by most people. But that in is this very position. military. I mean, it is. It, it is. And don't get me wrong. I mean, Starfleet obviously has weapons. You know, mm-hmm. you don't make photon torpedoes for nothing. Like right? I, I don't believe that Star Trek or excuse me, Starfleet exists just for exploration because these people do fight wars. Right. All the time. Of course. In every show, they have fought a war except for TOS. So, like, they are militaristic. Whether Simon Pegg wants to say they aren't or not. Well, because it has to do with, do you fight in wars to preserve your way of life and to protect people? Or do you serve in wars for the reason Marcus wants to? To Which is go why out looking is for villain. trouble and committing genocide, right? Well, that's the difference, though. So Starfleet is supposed to be an exploratory and peacekeeping operation. It's what, it's what Pike calls it in the 09 film, right? right? Yeah. Sure, they have weapons. They have to protect themselves. There's dangers out there. You've got the Klingons and the Romulans and the Cardassians, and they want us all dead. And we're not going to go and destroy them, because that's wrong. But we're also not going to let them walk all over us, either. And that's a di- that's different. Th- that doesn't make you a military organization. That's fair, you know. And so the the point I'm trying to make here is that the uniforms have always been a big part of Star Trek. Every time there's a new uniform, it's dissected to hell, and some people love it, and some people hate it, and whatever. And I think this is a weird example where they introduce for particularly like two rank levels in the middle a a a uniform that doesn't seem to fit in with anybody else's yeah because at least the admiral ones you can say well it's a stylistic choice to be a callback to the motion picture i like i i agree with everything you're saying i just i think it was an art choice that was designed to kind of display some of the darker themes of this film fair enough so all right so they he beams away he gets away pike dies so ray you had this question and i don't even know if i know the the answer to it but why do you think spock mind melds with pike uh spock mind melds with a lot of people <laughs> and i was always he really should get tested at this point my my issue is i i got into trek a lot later i started with the kelvin films and branched off from there so you know i've had Trekkies educate me, you two being my biggest teachers, but like both of you have said that the mind meld needs consent. Otherwise, it is a similar experience to like a mental emotional rape. Because mm-hmm. of what Spock in the first Kelvin film says that like the emotional effect is intense for the other person, especially if they're not Vulcan. So, yeah. Why does he mind meld with so many people? It's three in this. Yeah. Why? It's uh, the, the Siler coming out. <sighs> Is it three? I'm only remembering two. 
I there's one in the middle where he does it okay. as well. Um, no, I'm not sure. Like part of me thought that maybe he was trying to get information from Pike, but then that's never brought up, so that I don't think that's what it was. Well, he could have been trying to get information from Pike and then just failed to do so. That's possible. That's definitely possible. I feel um, like some of it's it's well. I mean, he says it himself later on the film. He's like, you know, he didn't say that this is why he did it, but he said when he did mind meld with him, like he felt fear. Um. And and he, how he didn't that was a turning point for him and that he didn't want to feel fear so I don't know morbid curiosity he's like oh like you know I, I am a half Vulcan this is a dying human let's see what let's see what this is all about yeah I mean because it, it is an issue in Star Trek I mean you have the episode Sarek where Sarek shows up and he's older yeah. and he mind melts with Picard and you see what that can do to a human yeah. um and you see hell star trek 3 <laughs> is all about you know uh bones having spock's katra and and what yeah. that can mean to somebody who isn't vulcan but the katra and then the transference that happens in the tng episode are different than just a mind mill. yeah like there, there's a different layer involved um of intensity but yeah Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, my first reaction was that it was meant only like to comfort him. He was going to take some of his calmness and give mm. it to Pike in his last minute, so that he wouldn't feel so much pain, confusion, loss, whatever. But it didn't happen. You yeah. never saw Bruce Greenwood act that, so that wasn't conveyed, and therefore I'm left being like, "Don't touch his face, dude." Right. <laughs> Unless it's altruistic and you're going to give him some peace before he goes, then then yeah, quit doing that. Yeah. So that's, that's no, just kind of my... That's a good point. It's a good, valid question. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. So, um... Let's move on to Kronos. Or, no, the desk. You want to talk about the desk? It's a cool desk. I mean... It, it starts with this really cool shot of the various models of, of space travel over the years. And well, just um, tra air travel. And air, yeah, air travel, right? And but I'm a sucker. If you're paying attention... The Vengeance is sitting right there on his freaking desk. Marcus yes. was yeah. so... Like, that is hubris, yeah. sir. Yeah. Your secret ship is for everybody to see. You took the model that... Big old balls. And honestly, the first time I watched the movie, I actually didn't notice. The, the scene goes so quick, I just thought it was a Constitution-class ship. Mm -hmm. Because it's after the Kelvin, and so I, I assume like that's your next step. Yeah. I feel like they're missing a step by skipping everything between the Kelvin and the Vengeance, but... Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in subsequent viewings, I'm like, that's the freaking vengeance. It's just sitting right there on his desk. Yeah. So mean typical black color. Typical villain uh, behavior. Uh, and the thing is, though, I mean, he's got a bunch of models on his desk, and yeah, they all correspond to real ships. Maybe the vengeance, you know, maybe not all the particulars of it, but maybe the vengeance was a ship that was in development. And, and um, you know, its existence there on the desk, you know, doesn't, you know. It's possible that the... Dreadnought had already been in development and that he just took it over as like this this weapon. Like maybe it was supposed to be a luxury cruise liner. And it looks like he, one. Yeah. he war machined it out. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't, Again, it, I'm making ridiculous justifications because we don't have the answers. It's, right. The honest reaction is that is some hubris right there. Like, those are some brass ones. But <laughs> it's possible that the design of this was in existence before he got a hold of it. I mean, maybe. Right? Like, but part, part of my problem is that it's all a reaction to what happened in the previous film. And that was only a year earlier. Right. So, like, the if JJ we put aside that they were able to build this ship in a year... 
when did they design this ship, and why would they have designed it prior to the attacks on Vulcan? Luxury cruise liner. There's nothing about it that says that, and you know well, it. Like, no, okay. Except it, it's, its size, it could fit, like, it's, hundreds of thousands of yeah, people. Then why is it a different color and material than every other starship? Oh my god, can we here's, just move no, on? No, all right, Here's all right. the deal, here's the deal. All right. It's more than just the attack on Vulcan a year ago. It's 20 fucking years ago that a fucking space invader came from nowhere and shot up a bunch of ships. Like, that to me, it's not the attack on Vulcan, it's Nero coming out of the fucking sky. That's the turning point for the Federation. That shit happens. Nothing changes in those twenty-five years. The Enterprise you know of the ships that we get in the two thousand nine film are the progression of the Kelvin ship, not the progression of. And to me, it makes sense that that crazy shit happens with Nero. That maybe you start secretly developing some extra shit, like sure, but that's a year, literally a year. No, that's not a year. Yes, it is. No. The original attack when Kirk's dad oh, dies. But they, but they're, they're, so you're telling me that they designed the ship over the course of 26 years, and they it took them 26 years to design that ship. I'm not <laughs> saying it took 26 years. I'm saying like we we did this last week too. If you want the real answer, it's probably a really boring bureaucratic one. It probably didn't take 26 years to design that ship. 26 years ago, the Federation high ups, a group of admirals, got together and said, "Hey." This is scary. Should we maybe start thinking about this? And some of the admirals said, no, we shouldn't. It's not that big of a deal. Some of the other admirals said, maybe we should. And, you know, five, ten years go go on and, like, they continue to have these discussions and then maybe they, they branch off or older, you know, admirals die off or retire. And then they're, they're left with another group of admirals that believes very firmly that this is a value. So, no, I'm not saying it took 26 fucking years. I'm saying there's a number of reasons. There's a whole timeline. Right. There's probably, I mean, there, there isn't, but if you want me to, I will write a fan. <laughs> Fiction, IDW, but it's not your job book. to do that. It's it's the right. movie's job to do that. And what the I don't movies care are sh- though. Well, but you need to. Well, but that's the thing. Like this doesn't make or break or change the film. Like because and that this right. is this is this is what I'm saying. Like the real answer, it may be more bureaucratic and boring, which is why they don't bother telling us that like it, this thing happened and then eventually... that's not consistent with the two films. The two films show an attack on the Kelvin that takes place 25 years early, 26 from In the Darkness. Ships have been destroyed before. It's seen as an attack from a rogue Romulan ship that's never heard from again. Right. Nothing in the Fed- in Starfleet changes from that point forward from a design perspective. Right. Right. And then a year after, we have the Vengeance. A year after 09, we have the Vengeance. I still think this is, you know, there's an alternate break-off, like what you'd see, like Doc Brown uh, doing the, in Back to the Future, doing the, the alternate timeline. You've got the main timeline no, I, that I splits know, up. But, but like, no, but I'm saying is just because we didn't see it doesn't mean that it didn't start happening long before the attack on Vulcan. Okay. I, I that, think that there would be some other ships that would be warships then. And not See, just the normal ships we're used to seeing. But I mean, the not other ships. If that... the majority of admirals and, and uh, power, uh, you know, decision makers in Starfleet want to continue the exploration thing, maybe it's a matter of like, okay, fine, like you can develop your warship in secret, but we still want to maintain face as an exploratory organization. Right, the one ship. But that's what I'm saying. They built the one ship. Right, and then keep that on the down low, which is what they did. But that guy, Admiral Marcus, doesn't reference the Kelvin. He references Nero's destruction of Vulcan. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is like, I mean, 
this is like a pharmaceutical company creating. I'm not saying I'm not being conspiracy theorist here. It's like <laughs> creating a, a a disease as justification for the cure that you already have in development. Like this is a matter of like. So we built this warship, and there's no reason to use it because this attack on Nero seems to be kind of a one-off thing. Boom! All of a sudden, Vulcan is attacked and blown up, and you have a reason. I mean, you've been you... developing this thing in secret, and all, now all of a sudden, it seems much more useful, and you have a reason. That's to a lot use of it. headcanon that's not in the movie. I it's not in the movie, but I also <laughs> think that like this, the stuff I'm saying like isn't that big of a leap. Like this makes sense. I, I think it's You're... less of a leap to say that it's poor writing, and right. that they didn't take into account that a ship like that would probably take more than a year to figure out. I, I'm just saying like, <laughs> that's all. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like I, that's a. I agree with you there, but I feel like, but this is the movie we have, and so like there are and other it's ways one of the reasons it. I don't like it. <laughs> I get what that. I'm saying. I get that. I'm just saying like there's all kinds of other explanations. All right. So what what do we have next? They go to Kronos. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to kick us off with Kronos? You can. Uhura apparently speaks Klingon. Yeah, I mean that's not surprising. No, it's not. I mean that's that makes. There sense. are people that were upset by that. I thought it was cool. Um, I will say that this film, that, that Uhura deserved better than what she got. That being said, her scene, like, facing down the, the Klingons showed her being not just a whiny girlfriend, but a badass. And Kirk and, uh, Kirk and Spock have that be, uh, conversation in the ship where he, you know, Kirk's, like, wanting to, to help out. And, and Spock's like, you do not want to incur her wrath. <laughs> like, which, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, she, I mean, was, she deserved better, but that was a cool scene, and I appreciated that she had at least her moment. She deserved, you know, way much more, but it, that was a cool moment. Yeah, and I, I do like the Klingons. I know people were upset because in Star Trek Six, yes, or is it yeah Six, right? Yeah, uh, Ohura has to look up Klingon in the phone book or whatever that is, <laughs> right? And that actually was the scene that bothered me because it doesn't make sense that she would need to do that. Yeah, right. She's been in Starfleet at that point for. 30 30 something years yes she's an expert at her job she always has been so it would make no sense to me that she couldn't speak basic klingon right you know so i actually saw this as more of a correction on something that was probably wrong before for sure um i don't care for the klingons i like the helmets the helmets are cool um, well, they just show one guy. Yeah. I, that's what, mm-hmm. like, for some reason, I when I remembered it, I thought more people were shown. Now, we can't judge the entire human race on what one person looks like. And... You could try. It's... You want to try. It complete, like, I, I've just accepted this headcanon where Kronos is huge and environments may differ, and just because different people on this world have different amounts of melanin doesn't mean, like, that others can have different forehead ridges or no forehead ridges or, you know, some people get their entire forehead ridges pierced and others don't. So, you know, in my head canon, the Discovery, the Kelvin, the TNG, and the TOS can all exist on one giant planet and i'd be fine with it because you know we all look really fucking different and if aliens saw us they'd be like there's no way you're all related so yeah it's yeah i mean one of the problems with sci-fi right is that usually all the aliens from a planet look the same 
Exactly. You know, or more or less the same with very little differentiation. And that's, I think... Like, why do the Navi all look the exact same? There's no reason why they should. Well, and the Andorians... There should be, like, different tones to the blue, at least. <laughs> well, that's, like, the Andorians are all blue except for the, the, the subspecies that's not blue, right? Like, there's, like, that kind of stuff, but... The green and white Martians in DC. Like, this is poor writing throughout sci-fi, so I, I'm choosing to just accept that these Klingons can all look different. All the Klingons sure. can look different, and it still come from Kronos. I always took it more as a budgeting problem than a writing problem. Well, of course. You know. <laughs> well, I, I just meant, you know. That... It all comes down to the writing, though. You know, you're going to let your costume department go all out with their prosthetics, with their teeth, with everything, their dress, their hair. There has to be a story behind it so i'm choosing to have a story behind this so i can just watch the damn movie and not get upset by it okay i mean we are reviewing a movie we've been which upset is what by, I, which is what i do we've been upset by many movies many times before i mean if you can't critique it then why are we even here <laughs> and I, will... I don't know i could leave and to your point on the the Klingon, and I'm looking for it now, and I can't find it because I don't want to just make this up. But I thought I remembered reading something, like maybe even like a year after this movie came out, where J.J. Abrams or someone from the production team basically said, "Oh yeah, that Klingon was actually part Romulan." Yeah, and they, I can't, they I can't retconned find that under- it later. And there's some stuff in the in the yeah. comics too. I like the way he looked, and I thought it was, it was cool that cool. he yeah. pierced his forehead ridges. That is totally yeah. fine. I'd do that shit if I was Klingon. I'm not saying you can't like it. Not saying that. Not saying it at all. All right, let's move on then. Khan so, shows up and kills a bunch of people. How do we feel about that? I was gonna go back and say <laughs> that I pretty hate, gratuitous. I hate the scene where Hora confronts. Spock while they're flying. Mm. I that's very soap opera like. It's not in Ahura's character. Um, she interrupts her captain, and that's not like her either, unless it's you know something that has to do with the mission. There are two people, crew members, joining on that little flight, and we can conveniently forget they even exist. Right. So it it was very it it was the worst demonstration of her character throughout the entire movie. And if she didn't have that badass scene with the Klingons right after, then she'd be completely irredeemable throughout this entire film. Like that that was just horrible. No, I agree. Somebody was... on a, a possible death mission does not behave that way. Right. I'm with you. I've always agreed yeah. with that. You know, uh, I don't really particularly like how her or Carol are portrayed in this movie. The women you in know, this film um, are done a huge disservice. Yeah. And it's it's unfortunate because, you know, it's the only movie we get Carol in. We don't get to see yeah. her again. And, and That was uh, a huge bummer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she and then Uhura is really the only woman in the first movie yes. of any mm-hmm. consequence. And so... Look, you can't have too many women in power. <laughs> it's dangerous. Right. Then you end up with Discovery. And, uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love Discovery. I'm wondering but. if Pike's going to make a comment about him being uncomfortable with women on the bridge. <laughs> I think they're probably going to skip over that line <laughs> from the pilot. Uh, I'd like to see Rebecca Romaine sock him. So. Yeah, yeah. I hope they skip over that and they don't try and <laughs> tread on that water. Let's pretend it didn't 
happened because it was bad 1964 writing. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So we do have that scene. Uh, for anyone who missed it, that's M- Harry Mudd's ship. It's a very small line in in the film. I didn't notice that. Um, yeah, I, I can't even remember who says it, but somebody yeah. said yeah. They confis- Scotty said they that... confiscated Mud's ship, um, and so I didn't even hear who? That. So Mud is, and this is something cool, but also a critique of the JJ verse is that like in order to get all of the things, you have to read a lot of books behind the you know there were a lot of the comic books behind it, uh, and Mud is actually a woman in the JJ verse, right? So, not that that, you know, makes a huge difference either way, but yeah, Mud's, uh, is a character in the comics, but leading up to this point. It's a nice little line, um, yeah. you know, because, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whose ship it is, no. but by throwing in that line, it, it expands the universe and lets people know that character exists, and if you don't know who that is, it's not like you're confused. Right. No, it, right. It, it harms nothing. I didn't hear the line, I know who Mud is, and, uh... You know, Rain, Rain Wilson. Wilson is obviously pretty amazing in Discovery, as much as it, we were all kind of dreading Mud being in Discovery. But you know, it didn't add. It doesn't add anything for me. It's just a little throwaway. Yeah. Um. So then, yeah. So so Khan shows up. They have the fight. He kills most of the Klingons. Um. Kirk tries to beat him up. That was which, funny. Which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Um. Just tiring himself out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Khan just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He even jokes that later. He's like, or would you rather try to hit me again? Which I, I liked because it... So this Khan is clearly... And I'm sure it's more just because it's more sophisticated movie making than when Space Seed was made in the 60s. But he's a much more physically advanced person he is stronger he is faster because i mean kirk in in space seed puts up a bit of a fight against khan in the engineering room (laughs) you know he's losing but you know he's not getting beat up quite as bad uh as he would be in this and so they did kind of amp him up a little bit yeah let's face it if you know 300 years ago from this they were creating genetic humans intelligence would not be the first thing that they the first genetic that they screwed with it's it's power it's mm-hmm. physical strength and endurance and speed that they would do because we want superheroes more than we want scientists mm-hmm. now they did luckily leave out like exact dates so they didn't say that the botany bay got lost in space in the year 1996 because that would not quite have worked for us yeah um although that was kind of clever i don't think they actually call it the botany bay do they, they don't that's Mm-mm. kind of a shame i wonder why i wonder if there's a reason for that yeah um it doesn't matter if you're gonna throw mud's name in there why not throw botany bay yeah. right yeah i would have been curious to see the ship that could have been cool mm-hmm um, there wouldn't have been a good reason to show it, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, so he surrenders, of course, because he knows what's in the torpedoes. Um, and so that becomes a thing. Um, he's back on the ship. I actually like the brig, the design of the brig quite a bit. I thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, a nice way of it being more advanced. Uh, I got so used to the, the force fields, mm-hmm. you know, that they have in, in TNG and Voyager and all of that. And you touch it and it lights up and everything. Um, it was kind of interesting to see it not be that. This mm-hmm. was 2012? Yes. Maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a side note, it, it was a common, uh, theme, it wasn't all that, all that many years ago, but it was a common trope in movies of this time 
for the villain to allow the hero to capture them and have like some sort of conversation in a prison. Yeah, so, this and Loki. It yeah. both happened in 2012. Loki, um, uh, Skyfall happened around that time. I don't know if it was in 2012, but it was around that time. Um, yes, and 2013, I thought. Yeah, there's another movie that I can't think of now. Uh, oh, I mean, this is a little bit earlier on, but the. Joker scene in oh, Dark Knight. Dark Knight, yeah. yeah. So like this was like a thing for a handful of uh, years. Oh, uh, that was two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. It was it was much. It was the first one to do it, and then like in twenty twelve, a bunch of people copied it. To be fair, this I think is the only time where the villain wants to get caught, not to like screw things up on that in that area. Right, but to get help. Right, but yeah, to get help. Whereas you know the others are really just trying to cause more trouble. Mm-hmm. Yes, you yeah, know that's true. Um. So yeah, so there's that. But the Loki and uh, Khan imprisonment is very similar, and even like their cages, yeah, very similar. That's so. true. I never really thought about that. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've watched that movie. They are similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess you know what are you gonna do? You need to, you want to be able to see the person that you're paying all the money, so you don't want to like <laughs> you know put right. them like in a box where you can't see them. So yeah. It's special glass, you know, or whatever. <laughs> That's true. Um, all right, so so yeah, so we have that scene that you, they do the bomb scene, the the torpedo scene where they defuse the torpedo on the oh, planet. Oh, let's talk about the scene right before. Oh yeah, on the shuttle. What about it? Where they did it to a horror in the first one, mm-hmm. and. It slightly made sense because she was in her own home. But here, Carol Marcus decides to strip down and even though it makes no sense, there's no reason why she can always, I'm sure she had a room actually on the Enterprise and she tells Kirk to look away and of course he doesn't. Yeah. And we see a full pan down, and Alice Eve looks amazing. She's a beautiful woman. But, yeah. It was a gross scene that doesn't age well. It, and it also doesn't make any sense because he doesn't even go down to the planet. So why is he on the shuttle anyway? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, at least if it was Bones, you're, you know, he's going down with her, so they're on the shuttle together. Right. And for the record, I ship Bones and Marcus. That was adorable. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that scene is what can a these total... magical hands do for you? If anything, I feel like that scene was meant just so they could put it in the trailer, and then they mm. forgot to cut it. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, because like... <laughs> you, you, you cut that scene from the movie, and you already have an instantly better movie. Yeah, I never liked that. It never made any sense to me. It's, it's tacky. Yes. It seemed really out of place, and they're already changing her character significantly uh, from who she was in the prime timeline or whatever. Yeah. And I get that, because if you remove the whole Project Genesis, there's really no need for her to be the same character. But, you know, being a weapons right. expert makes sense for who she is and who she belongs to. Or mm-hmm. I mean... But the thing is, though, like, comes from. why does it even need to be the Marcus family? 
Because you don't bring her back. If you bring her back and beyond... Because it's Wrath of Khan. That's what they're doing. Right. And yeah. that's, but that's the problem, though, right? Like, if you're going to bring her back, then you could say that, like, maybe you're setting up their romance. Because they do get together and have a kid. Right. Right? So that's cool. And that may have been originally the plan, but they couldn't get her. I don't know what the backstory is as to why they didn't yeah. include her. That may have been the plan. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. She's in the comic books for a little while. I forget right. how they write her off or why. I don't yeah. remember. Um, it just... It kind of just seemed like a way to shoehorn in an existing universe character. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a million faceless bad admirals. It's a trope in Star Trek that the admiral's usually the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Pike being an exception, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Janeway. Those are the two exceptions to the rule. But, uh... Well, here's the issue. You remove the fact that it's Khan and Marcus, and this is a pretty good movie. The fact that it's just a refit for a movie that we've already seen... When one didn't do that and three didn't do that is bothersome. John Harrison and Carol Wallace are great characters and they had potential. Mm -hmm. This story, what a man would do to save his family, to save his crew is great. Right. Yeah. It's the retread and the refit and because it, it's not just callbacks in this one. It's like <laughs> it's a lot. completely repurposing it. And, you know, it would have been a much better film without that. Who cares about Khan in this? That name has no significance until you talk to old Spock. Well, that's the problem, right? So when you're watching the movie, you either get the reference and it doesn't change anything. Or you don't get the reference and so it doesn't change anything. Right. So I'm not sure who that's for. Like... Why the reveal? Why isn't he con the whole time? Why isn't he John Harrison the whole time? The switch doesn't seem to do anything for anybody. Mm-hmm. Because since his name is just Khan, you know, then, I mean, it's not like you're going to look him up. There's a million people with that name. Right. Right. So, like, that's not going to do anything for you. So, the reveal doesn't do anything. All it does is show that J.J. Abrams was lying to everybody for a really long time. Yeah. And that was the problem. <laughs> Um, that, that's that's a big crux of the film for me though is 2009 he found an in-universe way to create his own timeline to do whatever he wanted with that ip and it was genius because like it or not he followed the rules and you got to respect him for that right he didn't just start over from scratch and then the first thing he does when he has free reign is redo the wrath of Khan. like mm-hmm. why why I mean, at least do something on your own. So if it's good or bad, you just tr- you tried something new. Well, the Wrath of Khan was successful because it it referenced stuff that was already there, and it brought back and developed a character that was already like a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. know that's why Wrath of Khan was successful. But this doesn't have that to go off of. These people aren't also doing a TV show or did a TV show fifteen twenty years ago. Like they. They don't have that. So, you know, build off of the first one and introduce more women because, you know, one woman right. in an entire crew makes zero sense. And, you know, do that. Have this guy protect his entire crew that's been floating for 300 years or however many years. Now they're all in cryostate. And, you know, that all is fine. That storyline is fine. And Benedict Cumberbatch is a great actor and he is scary good in this. So, you know, almost the entire movie works if you just remove Marcus and Khan. Just those two words and... The movie immediately becomes better for me. 
I agree with you completely. And that's my issue. Like, those, that's my story issue. That is why I don't enjoy this movie as much as I possibly could. Because sitting here watching it, there are some really great story elements that get perverted by the con reference immediately. Kirk's death is sad and it's emotional and it got me. Like, first mm-hmm. couple times it didn't get me. But it got me it powerful. when I watched it this time. And, I like, I teared up. And their exchange, it wasn't just a refit of Spock's death. And Mm-mm. so it, it didn't feel like a copy. But then he it's screams Khan like an asshole. And I literally laugh. And it ruins what just happened. See, and a lot of people in the theater laughed when that happened. Here's my, thi- here's my thing. I, I have a really unpopular opinion. I think that was better than Shatner's Khan. It totally was. Yeah. It made more, more sense for the story. So. Yeah. But they did it just because Shatner did it. Yeah. That's, oh, I mean, Shatner can get away with it because, first off, The Wrath of Khan is an older, campier film to begin with, and Shatner's a campier actor. Right. Right? It fits the Shatner Kirk. Well, by Wrath to do of that. Khan, there had already been multiple Shatner parodies with right. the way he talks and commas are everywhere and so like people had already started to make fun of him at this point and that's what this felt like it, it felt like just a, a Shatner impersonation and let's not even forget even though it does make the uh, yeah it more makes more sense. sense yeah and Zachary Quinto he I don't know it didn't bother me because he did deliver the fuck out of it like here's, here's the thing keep in mind with the difference between these two screams in the uh, Wrath of Khan nobody's dead it's when he he's Khan thinks he's he's marooned Kirk. Yeah. Kirk knows he's going to be fine because he's got the deal with Spock set up where they lied about the time differences. Yes. Kirk knows they're fine. So it's a cheesy line because he's acting. It's Shatner acting as Kirk putting on a show for Khan. Yeah. Versus Spock is upset that Kirk died and is shouting the name of somebody Who's not even on the ship. Right. Okay. Like well, Marcus is the one that sabotaged the warp core. Right. Khan didn't do it. So really he should have been yelling, Marcus! <laughs> I mean, yeah. even though that dude's head just collapsed inside of it. I mean, the reality is the villain is Marcus. Yeah. Khan is only a villain because of Marcus. Right. Marcus is the behind it all. I mean, at the end of the day, most of what... Khan's the antagonist. Like, he definitely is a huge fuck and yes. scary and does horrible actions. Like, they mentioned his, realistic. his crew, like, wanting to commit genocide. Like they're, oh, yeah. they're bad people. Exactly. So, like, he's still a villain, but, like, security. Marcus is the bigger threat to uh, the Enterprise and its crew. Right. The thing is, if you that... strip out previous knowledge of who Khan is, he kind of has a point through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. He's been manipulated and his family has been threatened and he's basically been Held blackmailed. Hostage. Yeah. He's he's been blackmailed to do these horrible but things. But he did the exact well, same thing to Mickey the idiot at the yeah, very beginning. Right. But here's the deal. After all of that stuff already happened to him though. The Spocks have already had this conversation. And so like he's yelling Khan and, and yeah, made it may not make sense in the moment to blame him as much as Marcus, and Marcus is absolutely more of the villain than Khan. But Young Spock has already talked to future Spock, and young Spock has it in his mind now that Khan is this end-all, be-all villain. And so it's not a, it's not a logical, it's not a, uh, 
uh, a huge leap to, to all of a sudden be pissed at Khan because he's, you've already talked to a future version of yourself he who be... has warned you that Khan is going to fuck your shit up. No one's saying he can't be <laughs> so... mad at Khan. No one's saying he shouldn't have gone after him. I'm saying that the Khan shout makes less sense for me than the Shatner one. And that's the Shatner fine. one doesn't make me laugh. That's, the Quinto well, yes, one does. the original. Well, and, I, and that's fine that it does. I'm just saying, like... I agree with you on all that. I'm just saying, like, it just doesn't bother me that he yelled it because of the reason I just said. Like, but yes, it absolutely it also, was done. It was done as a reference to another film. It was it was totally lifted. It, you know, it also it loses was not all of its weight in about 30 seconds when the Tribble comes back to life. Yeah, like, I don't know. Kirk's not even dead for one scene before the Tribble comes back to life. He yeah. does flat out say the word "super blood," which is very bothersome. Right. Like, yeah, they, like, so that's part of my problem too. Is it took two movies to bring Spock back to life, yes. Yes. you know, and it really took until six to arguably have him back to normal, well, right? Well, and a lot of movies do this. A lot of movies do this now where instead of, you know, stringing it out through multiple movies, a lot of movies, you kill someone off and they're going to come back before the end. It's just a but that's not thing. But that's not a good thing. I'm not saying right? it is. So what I'm, I'm saying, not saying it so is. So I'm saying here, it, it, it hurt the movie for me because the reality is while Spock is down trying to kill Khan... We're all sitting around going, well, Kirk's going to be fine. Right. Because the trouble came back to life. Like, but, you, there could have been a way to rewrite that where yeah. we didn't know. Well, you probably could have guessed with the super blood thing and the yeah. offhanded remark about the trouble before he and Khan leave the ship to begin with. It could have made it less obvious. But it's just, yeah, it's very obvious and it happens so fast that you can only feel bad for like two minutes. No, that is valid. I will say, though, that rewatching this, like any movie, whether it's, yeah, Spock doesn't come back until the next movie and he needs a few more movies to get back to normal, or in most movies these days where you, that someone gets killed off and then they come back before the end, like, regardless of how long you have to grieve a character, which, I mean, you could have a whole other podcast on death in comics, films, whatever, and how it's kind of a shit show, um, and it doesn't really give proper weight to the subject matter, but all that aside... Uh, the acting was so phenomenal and the scene where, where uh, Kirk you know, made that sacrifice was so well done that, yeah, he comes back and it kind of diminishes some stuff, but like it doesn't negate the emotional impact of the sacrifice. I know that in uh, when I'm watching Wrath of Khan that Spock is not actually dead. It doesn't mean it's not emotional to watch. And yeah, you get longer time to grieve and process that in general than you do for the, in this film, and I'm, I'm definitely saying that was a weakness of this already a little bit long film anyways. I mean, I, but I could it just say that, like, the, the emotion from the Wrath of Khan gets removed by the whole subtitle of the third film. It's called The Search <laughs> right. for Spock, when it could have been, you know, hey, motherfuckers, Christopher Lloyd's in this. Like, <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, they, they wanted people to know that Spock was coming back because people were really upset they had killed him off. Right, because right? Nimoy at the time was leaving. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think for me, it's it's not so much that you know or don't know that a character is coming back. It's more of just give me a minute to let it really set in. No, that's totally valid. And I didn't time it, but I really think that between no, the con scream and the triple coming back to life is like less than three or four minutes. It yeah, it was. You know, and that's just that's not long. It's really no. not. No. You know, you could give me some time. Then it, it doesn't you know, there's uh, there's movies on the other end of the spectrum where it gets distracting too. Uh, the only knock 
that I have on Captain America Winter Soldier is that I just kept waiting for Nick Fury to be alive. Oh, Because right. I knew he wasn't dead. And it took so long for them right. to bring him back that it was distracting. Right? There, it can be on both sides. It just was so fast. Yeah. And it had been set up so hard early on that it didn't have a lot of weight well, for me. this movie is over two hours long and, and they could have done something a little bit better with the pacing for sure. But I honestly, the last ten minutes, everything about the last ten minutes is super rushed. Yes. Like, and you go straight from like action scene to all of a sudden Kirk's awake and then all of a sudden like you're getting this like speech because like, oh my god, we have to like wrap this movie up. We're already way over. Yeah, I mean, it's two hours and twelve minutes. Yeah. Okay, so. That's a bit it's, long. It's a long Star Trek movie. It, it really is. But, I mean, maybe you tone down some of the action sequences. I mean, we skipped a lot of, the, like, the battle between the Vengeance and the Enterprise is a long sequence. It is. And the Enterprise falling into Earth's atmosphere and coming back up is that a was long, long sequence. It was. They could have cut some of that. Uh, expensive. Was. I'm sure they put a lot of money into that because it looked really good from it a did. quality it standpoint. pretty great. I couldn't tell what parts were practical and what parts were CGI, which is mm-hmm. impressive. I know a lot of JJ stuff, like, he had the models, so to... For the models to have such realistic damage was yeah. pretty impressive. No, I mean, I, I have some problems with that battle scene because I just, I don't see the Enterprise surviving an attack like that. It's lost in worse fight, in, uh, fights that weren't as bad. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's a long sequence. And yeah. so you, you could have cut that down. Um, in some respects, you know, um, the whole po- the vengeance powering up of its special weapons that ended up powering down as a slow sequence. Yeah. Like, there's areas you could have spent things up. We don't need to see Scotty run down the entire cargo bay twice. Right. Like, we don't need to see God, that. God, that was painful. Like, that was yeah. a bad joke. Scotty's pretty amazing. And the whole him in the nightclub is great. Oh, it's I love like, that. Yeah. Yes. Scotty partying yes. is just a ridiculous James thing. James Tiberius perfect hair. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's that's character stuff. Though. It is that's that important. Was. The running was not. Right? Like he felt ridiculous being in that nightclub. You can tell he felt out of place because he's not hitting on anybody. No. He's complaining to Keenzer about how he misses his ship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the, I think there are places they could have cut down if that meant they could have had three or four more minutes of development at the end of this movie. Absolutely, yeah. I would have. I would have been okay with that. I did really like Simon Pegg's very subtle. Um, acting right before or right after once the section 31 bodyguard comes in and starts confronting him like he he was very subtle in like knowing that he was about to kill a man yeah yeah and him regretting it and wanting everything in his power to change it like he yeah you could just tell he was dragging it out for a reason well again Everyone in this movie has to ask the question, what are you willing to do to save the people you love? Mm -hmm. And Scotty in that moment, it was very underplayed, very subtle, but so powerful and so well done. And Scotty had to ask himself in this moment, like, I have to kill a man to save my captain and I'm not comfortable with that, but I have to do this. The problem is that they completely drop it right after. He doesn't, Right. There's no, uh follow-up to that i'm i'm pretty sure that i might have just like at least kicked kirk or something or yeah you know yeah because <laughs> like they're laying down on the floor right next to it i think i might have just like kicked him because one like he didn't trust my opinion to begin with and two i come back to my ship and i have to kill a man so right it sucks um the scene where um they're talking to Marcus. Like, you see, Marcus is awful. Like, there's all these terrible things happening. 
Oh, um, on the bridge? Of on the Avengers? bridge, okay. yeah. Before his eyeballs get pushed out of his... Yeah, oh my god, and the sound effects. God, that was an intense... That was, that was a lot of intense stuff happening all at once. If they had um, shown that, rated R immediately. Oh, absolutely. That Trek wouldn't have. But yeah. Trek wouldn't have. Abrams would have. He's yeah. directed rated R films. Sure. True. I'm, I'm aware. This was a Star um, Trek one. So. It was. <laughs> hey, who knows? We still might get a Quentin Tarantino rated R Star Trek that's film. True. Who oh knows? God. That's um, true. Keep that predator away. <laughs> but so, anyways, the I realized watching this time that Carol. I mean, Carol only has one badass moment, just like Uhura only has one badass moment. And uh, I really, um, I don't know. I watched this whole movie in, in mind with the whole uh, Mickey the idiot and his daughter. Lucille um, and that dynamic and and so you get to this point where Carol Marcus looks at her dad and says I don't believe that the man who raised me is capable of destroying a ship full of innocent people and it's almost like this is a question that Lucille Harewood is going to have to face like my dad did a terrible thing like my name's famous because my dad did something terrible and have to come to grips with like I probably uh, some survivor's guilt survivor's mm-hmm. guilt that's intensified because it was her life that was saved as a result of his actions and like so carol like saying that to her dad absolutely mirrored what i imagine lucille is going to feel towards her dad as she grows up that's clever and i thought that was a really cool parallel uh there were it just it was a, a common theme throughout this like again what cost would you go to mm-hmm. and then and not only like what would you sacrifice to save people you love but then what is the um What's the, what are the consequences for that? Like this, this movie is full of consequences. It's a movie about uh, loss and and grief and and, and also self discovery because the every person who asks that question in this film um, does so and, and and they make some messy decisions, but they do so with the benefit of gaining a better understanding of who they are. And I know it's heavy handed and cheesy, and I wish it was better. But Kirk's speech at the very end of this film totally touches on that like realizing like okay we as a federation have gone to some darker places and it has shown us who we are and who we really want to be and who we can strive for and i I thought that was cool it was was a common film it was a powerful motif throughout that uh really resonated with me and it's part of why i really enjoyed this film the final speech is fine i don't have any problem with that well you can tell that marcus it's a little rushed used his daughter used his family as an excuse for his actions and he doesn't need to say that when his daughter, who's been working for him or working adjacent to him, knows that as soon as she's on that view screen, mm-hmm. that she has saved everybody. Right. So he, she knows that her father will not harm her. Right. And Yeah, I mean, that scene opens up a separate, another problem of consistency in the movie. But, um, you know, he can beam her off the ship. Without any problems, but yeah. you can't beam off the torpedoes or con. Um, and I just that seems he needs like, another location. Well, he knows that she's on the bridge. But there's lots of people on the bridge. Other women are on the bridge. Um, you know, so what does that have to do with anything? How does he know which one is her any more than anybody else? Is what I'm saying. Well, we never get to see their webcams. We know that the other webcams, it's like right here positions because it's really just nose on the view screen for both. Yeah. Nero and like, how do both villains keep their webcams so close? Yeah, the new view screens aren't great on the Enterprise. No, um, they're so sh- fuzzy on the side. I don't like, know why you, they went You think with you that. can't turn in the resolution? Just a bit? They want to be able to see through it for some reason, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's like 
at 560 instead of 1080. Like, they just need to... Maybe it's to avoid collisions, you know, so that way Picard can't ram you while he's talking to you on the, you know... Well, that seems unfair. Like, you know, <laughs> right. That's a really good scene. <laughs> it is. Um, and yes, I know the view screen's already gone by that point. But, uh, but still, it's anyway. a joke. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what else? What else do we have? Anything else? Um, yeah, the ship's fixed. Everybody goes off on the five-year mission and it's happy and then we never see Carol again. <laughs> yeah. That's a damn shame. It is. Watching Alice Eve in Iron Fist makes me very upset that she is not in more stuff. She is a great actress. She and is. she could have been a fun addition, a fun asset in Beyond. I completely agree. And I mean, I guess they wanted to add a, an alien lady. So. Oh, <laughs> right. oh my God. Can't have more than two of them. No. And they can't ever talk to each other. That's just ridiculous. And if they do, it has to be about other men and their relationships. Now, that didn't happen. This this movie, while deplorable for women, uh, Ohora does talk to Carol in one second about her. It's after her leg has been broken by Khan. She is on the med bay and mm-hmm. she wraps herself under her arm to support her and says, are you okay? Like, so she talks to her and it's about her. It's not about a man. So yes, it's a bare minimum. That is the bare minimum for Mm -hmm. the Bechdel test. Are there Mm -hmm. two women? Do they talk to each other? Is it about a man? There you go. Now I I was curious why she wasn't in beyond. Oh, you look it up. Um, And so uh, there's an article that cinema blend uh, put out a, uh, a little while back. And there's a quote in here from Simon Pegg, who helped write, he wrote Beyond. Right. Um, and so he, uh, he quote, uh, he says, quote, we thought rather than have Carol Marcus be not used to a reasonable capacity, let's just not include her, have her be alive in canon and be ready to come back at any time, end quote. So basically they just didn't know what to do with her in the confines of the story that they were writing for Beyond. And so they just did not include her. Like uh, Carol Marcus, weapon specialist. I'm not quite sure she belonged. Oh, wait. There's a giant weapon that Crawl has that maybe she could have explained or dismantled. Or, you know, maybe she could have been with uh, uh, Chekhov and uh, Kirk and explained Jayla's weapons. Or maybe she could have just, you know, existed. So, fuck you, Simon Pegg. There's always a spot. All right. Let's not... Fear. I'm not. I'm not saying it was the right call, but maybe it was a budgeting problem. I mean, she. You know, maybe she gets paid more. And... Every man in this movie got at least a small amount of characterization and depth. Mm-hmm. Sulu got the least, but that moment in the captain's chair where he threatens Khan, yeah, is good. It is good. And it, even so, the bones remarks on it. Like every man gets good writing. It's not fair. Star Trek is about representation and diversity and everybody on equal ground, but it's not. I mean, not all the time. No, not in Into Darkness. That's for sure. Not in 2009. No. Yeah, definitely not disagreeing with Not you. even in Beyond. Jayla and Ahura don't talk. No, we, we hadn't gotten to Beyond yet, so I wasn't <laughs> including that in the conversation. But. We talked about how in the TNG films, Crusher's completely forgotten. You're right. Troy gets the best writing she's had. And And that's why I'm a really big Voyager fan. That's why I really love Discovery, because they are more diverse shows that do a better job of being inclusive. 
you know star trek does do it just not all the time and not in the historic sense you know but prior there hasn't been a female science officer carol marcus in this film was kind of the first one and i always liked the idea that like i would be a science officer and things like that well i mean jadzia is a science officer in Deep Space Nine. But she's and first officer, and that comes first. She's like, not the first officer. Oh, right. Like Kira is. So. Sorry. She, I'm very I know. Like limited but, on my DS9 stuff. I just know that she's best friends or really close with um, the captain, and so there's a lot of conversations about that and not a right. lot about the science. They do have a very close You're right. So, I mean, Janeway and Balana, or even T'Pol on Enterprise, like the later shows started to do it better. Yeah. Is all is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So the, the Kelvin movies don't do a good job at it. TOS and TNG did not do a great job at it. Uh, TNG a little bit better, but not right. great. Right. But DS9 Voyager really tried and I think succeeded. Enterprise, not as much as a smaller group, but T'Pol is the science officer yeah. on, on Enterprise. It, it's um, a shame that they couldn't find a place for Rand and Chapel. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, like... Like, you don't have to make her a yeoman, because I know yeomans are outdated by this time. Like, having a secretary on your ship is outdated when the computer is a good enough secretary. But, like, come on. They're they're already existing canon. They're on the ship. Like... Mm -hmm. There's there's no reason Rand shouldn't be on it. I mean, she becomes a commander by the movies anyway, so yeah. I don't know why she couldn't just be a lieutenant at this point. Right. Or even, I mean, you want to make her an ensign, fine, but you may, like she can be somewhere. You know, she could be one of the people that takes over the con when somebody leaves or, or something like that. Right. Uh, like, and Ch- Chapel's she's there's a, a throwaway line that she's in the sick bay somewhere in the first Kelvin film, mm-hmm. the 2009 film, right. and then she I guess they basically say that she transferred away from. The Enterprise because of Kirk? And became a nurse. Yeah. So what was she before? A patient. Like, I mean, because Bones certainly made it sound <laughs> like she was... in the sick bay. <laughs> right. Like, Bones was wanting help from her. She was medical in some capacity, like... Right, so... You know, so... Like... I don't know. Like, that's weird. I don't know I why. Agree. I agree. I don't know why they didn't do that. Maybe they were... Ner- for, for Chapel, maybe they were nervous about recasting uh, Majel. That's, I mean, that's know, fair. But with Rand, you don't have that same type of... Majel just looks completely different from Christine Chapel. Like, she wore a blonde wig for it. And totally. So, I mean, you could... Alice Eve could have played Christine <laughs> Chapel <laughs> right. just right. Well, fine. Yeah. So... Yeah. That's... Yeah. That's a different movie. <laughs> a completely different movie. Look, I'm saying these movies do a terrible job at that kind of representation and just making these women anything other than can pieces of convenience and yeah that's it's unfortunate it's bothersome because of what star trek's supposed to represent you want to show me an old western where women are side pieces believable believable and we've got plenty of that we don't need more of that no it's a it's a real problem that's also why you know I think if they do another Star Trek film with this cast and Jayla's not in it, you're going to have people even more upset than they were about yeah. the lack of Carol Marcus and beyond. Jayla's so good. You know? um, she was such a standout character. She was so unique. And they set her up really well with Scotty um, that you could you could have her be a part of the crew and nobody's going to have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, well, I guess we'll have to see Montgomery if they... Scotty. 
<laughs> I mean, we don't even know if we're going to get a movie with the cast again. Yeah, so. it's still very up in the air. I'm yeah. actually hoping that if they aren't able to bring back Pine, if they aren't able to continue this storyline, if they have to go a different direction, I'd rather them just not. And I know that's not something that people do now. I know they don't have the artistic integrity to walk away when they can't make a good project, that they just shoehorn in yeah. a, a cash grab. But obviously these movies aren't cash grabs. No. No. They have to be very careful if they make another one of these because they have not been making good money. So this isn't a situation where, like, well, we'll just make another Transformers movie. They also haven't been making toys. Well, right. I mean, that doesn't help. Like, we all, like, we're not little kids playing with action figures, but we are grown adults who buy into really nice collectibles. We buy the NECA and Sideshow stuff. So, Mm -hmm. like, even just really good-looking ones or, heck, you know, all three of us own uniform replicas of some kind in some capacity. Like, you make the merch off of it, we'll do it. Yeah. We'll buy it. The three of us will at least, and we know the the rest of the Trek fandom is reflective of that. So, you know, you don't know how to make toys that aren't for kids. Well, let me show you 500 ways, and I will show you, like, my pocketbook. They're doing a better job now. We got the McFarlane license, or McFarlane has the license now, so they're, they're slowly yeah. releasing and stuff. Funko um, made their first pop set for Beyond. Um, so, I mean, the movie made... 228.7 domestically. Um, it had a $190 million budget, which in 2012 is pretty good money when you consider a movie like Aquaman in 2018 is only getting 165 So they gave money to this one. Right. You know, we talked about how Nemesis had a really low budget. I right? feel like they spent a lot of it on Cumberbatch, because at the time, like he's still hot. He's still a hot commodity, but he was being optioned to play like just about every villain. He was smog. And um, while the movie is now being released through Netflix next year, he w- was cast as Shere Khan in another right. mocap uh, jungle book. And, you know. Sherlock was doing really well. Mm-hmm. That's a fair point. More Sherlock? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, they, no, this has been fucking They forever. film it in between their other things. And I actually <laughs> Which think, is why there's longer gaps now. Yeah. And I actually think that's why they both are part of Marvel, because at least now they're on similar filming schedules. Yeah. But, you know, you look at the numbers and, like, each Kelvin film had a smaller opening. Yeah. 75, 70, 59 with Beyond. Like, people just aren't interested. But th- did they also have smaller um, theaters? Were they released in the same... Um, similar. So the 09 film was released in 4,053 theaters. Uh, Into Darkness was 3907, and Beyond was 3928. Okay. So pretty close. And Beyond was even more than Into Darkness and made significantly less. And I think it's um, probably merchandising and marketing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that's a big piece of it, you know. There, um, I maintain that the reason Iron Fist, Luke Cage, and Daredevil did horribly this year is because they were not advertised by Netflix. Netflix is trying to run out their contract with Marvel so they don't have to keep paying Marvel. And it's very obvious they don't care about those shows anymore. So, you know, then it, yeah. it's marketing and merchandising. Yeah. That's what it is. You know, and the numbers get murky because not every... The only eight of the Star Trek films of 13 were released internationally. Mm-hmm. Into Darkness right. did make the most worldwide. Yeah. Um, it's because of Jordan. You know, but... Uh, but, I mean, the, all three... The no top, giggles. It, it's because of China. China I, always... 
Well, yeah. <laughs> the three Kelvin films are the top three when you include the international numbers. Um, you know, with first with the TNG films uh, and then Undiscovered Country. You know, so you know, um, it's just one of those things where the the movies have not been incredibly popular, and so it's hard to keep justifying it when each one makes less. Because yeah. then, how do you? The actors want more money. You need more money to make the movie from a technology perspective as well, and so you run into a situation where is it profitable anymore? Um, an argument could be made that beyond lost money when you include marketing and, and that type of thing. So, um, which is sad because it was the best and we'll get to be on next week. So, all right. So we're way over time. We're at like an hour and 40 minutes. So Ooh. any final thoughts on Star Trek into darkness? Maybe you can cut some of this like Star Trek into darkness should have. <laughs> uh, no, is that, is that your final thought, right? I gave my final synopsis yeah. like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then that's it then for us. Uh, next week, we will be talking about Star Trek Beyond. So if you haven't watched that one yet, go do that. Um, Ray, where can people find you? I am Siren Ray. I am a cosplayer. I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon if you want to give me money, though nobody really does. So it's fine. It's fine. It's fine, guys uplifting zach <laughs> uh, i am at avengers cs on twitter and instagram i am not a cosplayer but i am a human being and if you want to give me money i will take it <laughs> <laughs> zach's gonna pay pal uh, i am the star trek dude on twitter you can come and talk with me out there i love talking trek and games and things like that with you you can find the show at red shirts pod on twitter if you want to tweet at us out that way we are Red Shirts and Runabouts on the Heroes Podcast Network, and we will be back next week. Thanks for joining us. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, google play and anywhere you can use an rss feed follow us on social media at heroes podcast on twitter facebook instagram and twitch and you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com engage hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus.